0: Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Minnesota 8, the last one for the year. On co-hosting duties with me this month on this chilly November day is Giant Bomb writer and critic, Austin Walker. Hey, thanks for having me on. And for all you listening, how this works is that each of us will go back and forth, listing off three games that we feel haven't gotten the critical attention they deserve in hopes that one of you will take it as a challenge. These games can be anything from Itch.io art games to prestige-level indie games to triple A games that fell through the cracks for
1: whatever reason. Austin, I hand the first one off to you. Sure. I'm going to open up with one of my favorite games from this year that I think slipped through the radar a little bit, maybe because it was an early access game that was an early access throughout the previous year, but also maybe because it just didn't, it didn't strike people as the sort of thing that you write criticism about, maybe, which is... Clay's Invisible Ink, a tactical RPG, or maybe not even a tactical RPG. It's like a tactical stealth game. It's a little bit of an XCOM or a Final Fantasy Tactics style unit management game, but it's also definitely influenced by Clay's great Mark of the Ninja action stealth game that really communicated clearly kind of what the different states of being were, whether or not you were being watched, uh, whether or not what you did was going to be noticed, and and what the outcome of any given action was. Uh, it's a game that I really love, and that I would love to see more people take a shot at saying something smart about, you know? I, I do remember some of the
0: stealth aficionados on Twitter talking about this game earlier the year.
1: Yeah, it was definitely, it did have some conversations pop up around it. Just received some new, a new expansion with some extra characters and stuff. It's a game where a lot of the joy for me, and this has been the case again and again this year with some other games like Galaxy The joy is like understanding, learning, coming to understand what the different abilities other NPCs and and enemies have and kind of unpacking or or unraveling what the best kind of, not maybe the best mode of attack is, but what different options you have with dealing with those things. And then, as the player, getting a bunch of different tools to try to deal with them in, in fun. And, you know, it's it's a game that makes you feel really smart when you achieve something, right? Like when you know that the guards are going to bust through the door and you find a place to hide so that when they come through the door they don't see you and then they're vulnerable, that feels good. And that feels way better when it's when it's a much more complicated system than that. When a drone comes in that can hear your footsteps and so you need to be quiet, and then also you can hack this power supply. It is a game that has uh, a bunch of different layers of tactical options from where your characters are and how they, how they interact with other characters to how they interact with the kind of cybernetic level, the, the, the kind of matrix level of the, the Internet that everything is kind of wired into. It's also just a, a very cleanly designed game that, that takes a lot of notes from tabletop, game, uh, tabletop card game Netrunner, uh, living card game, where there's lots of smart interactions between um different layers of the game, different economies and different resources it's something that I kind of think that, again this is maybe why critics you know including me, have not written much about it that it's a game that seems tough to fully unpack mechanically, and so the kind of analysis that I want to do of it in terms of what meaning it produces right and this is a game about. Uh, kind of independent cyber operative, you know, uh, agency, a kind of uh, spy agency going after these big mega corporations. I- I'm always there's something there, if I can dig through the mechanical weight of it and like get at how that stuff influences what it's what it's saying about these different mega corporations, specifically different mega corporations coming together to go after a former governmental spy agency, which there's something there, there has to be <laughs> have to put that time together, or someone else should. Uh, so yeah, so that's my first game.
0: But most of the meaning comes through
1: mechanically <sighs> in like the minute details, or is there like? Oh, there's, is there an actual framing device? There's actually, there's the absolutely a framing device in the narrative. Similar to the rest of Clay's games, it has like a lot of really uh, evocative stylish art and animation. There's a really cool introduction, or introductory animation, and then the final mission is actually fantastic. It's, it's of these games, so it, it has the kind of rogue light structure, right, where there's some advancement uh, available in terms of unlocking new character types, like FTL was advancing new ship, or picking up different ships. Uh, and so there is, like, some degree of that, but but unlike things like FTL's final boss, where you could really learn a pattern to, to success, the final moments of Invisible Ink are just fantastic, both mechanically and narratively and aesthetically. It's a new environment, there's something special happening that Changes the verbs that you, as a player have access to, and it is narratively a twist on what the core conflict is, so that you have to reevaluate a lot of different things I, I like it a lot all
0: right, what about you moving on. <laughs> on my first game is a game that I realized that I probably could have talked about last month and it's uh the cat lady oh yeah, sure this i i didn't really know about this until we decided to do a podcast on it at Pop matters and I played through it and it's filled with pulpy junk sensibilities but since <laughs> when has that ever stopped critics yeah. and but it's just so image laden symbolically in almost every attribute this is like if i don't want to like put, give too much of a hyperbole to it but this is like if you wanted to teach freud through a video <laughs> game or at least the basics of it because sure. that seems to be what it's going for through a like early 2000s new metal aesthetic mm-hmm. and it turns a lot of ideas within like adventure games on their heads and except for like one section near the end. But a lot of it is just it's imaginary. Some of the puzzles are absolute, especially in the dream sequences are absolutely brilliant and the way it will just subvert expectations to tell this story and about this woman who's suffering depression. And then it seems like there's almost this magical realism element that in the end, you don't know if this is a a mental construct Uh or, or at least a filter, or if all these magical things are actually happening because she has to deal with... Because as some of my uh, colleagues have thought, this almost plays like a superhero origin story of having to deal with five serial killers, although about halfway through it stops being interested in that concept, even though it has to go through the motions as like the internal and emotional resonance of this woman and and another woman who's also suicidal, who eventually becomes her roommate, and their internal like, thoughts and feelings that's and emotional revelations. And it's just so interesting to look at, because it's almost fully grayscale, except for splashes of color mm-hmm. here and there, within almost like a pencil drawing texture on everything. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, like most adventure games, I feel like once you get to the to a puzzle section that is just going to stymie you, that, that's it for, like for balance, for being connected mm-hmm. to the internal struggles. But it does have this wonderful moments, especially one scene where they're just on the balcony and they're just talking about their past with a light patter of rain while they drink coffee. Mm. And it's this long dialogue sequence where you don't have choices, you don't have, like, anything to solve. You just listen to this scene play out in front of you. That sounds really interesting. Of course, it uh, it is an auteur project of the creator. You can just get that idea or that feeling from it, and you don't always know what he wants, he wants to say about these dangerous, or at least these sensitive topics of depression, of online harassment, of like, of really people wanting to hurt one another really intimately. Mm. And, but it, you get the feeling that if even if he doesn't know what he wants to say with it, he understands the emotional feeling and pain that those situations
1: result in. You do feel like it is non-exploitative, though. Or or is that besides the point in that regardless of whatever it, his intention it wavers,
0: is? It wavers back and forth. Hmm. So – it really comes down to craft. There are some points. There are one or two questions that are just left hanging that says, why did you do that? That seems really weird. And it looks like it might be part of a larger interconnected work that deal with other characters. That, but So I don't actually know for specific. But no, there are a lot of scene, And yes, certainly the serial killers aspect is pretty exploitative, <laughs> even if the reaction by the main characters seems more humanist and real. Okay. That's interesting.
1: I, 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 That's one of those games that I've seen on the periphery. Again, like you said, a few adventure game people I've seen talk about it before, but never, I haven't seen it dived into uh, the, in a way that would unpack some of these questions. I feel like that's the fate of most adventure yeah. games nowadays. Yeah, uh, your second game. Uh, it's another different adventure game. It's a game called Cradle, which is by a studio called... Flying Cafe for Semi Animals, which is a fantastic name for a studio. It's a sci-fi kind of first-person exploration adventure game with some, some light puzzle elements that is in just one of the most unique settings I've seen in a game like this. It, it takes place in... It's a first-person game that is filled with things that you can read and, and piece together about what the state of the world is. It begins on the Mongolian steppe in a little yurt but is that face is immediately complicated by the inclusion of lots of kind of speculative fiction technologies that are alluded to more than ever purely defined. You can tell that there are lots of questions about things like genetic purity. It does some of the kind of post humanism and transhumanism touchstones of, you know, where is the human? Is the human, is there something immaterial that makes a human a human? But it also complicates that stuff, I think, by interweaving it with some eastern philosophy and eastern religion touchstones right the most interesting things i've read about this game have come from believe it or not uh, some threads on the steam forums where people have made some direct connections between uh, events in the game and even some of the the strange mini games that are in there there's kind of some block puzzly style mini games that connect directly to some key buddhist and hindu texts and That's always fascinating to me because as an outsider, one, I have to step out of myself and recognize that part of my interest is tied up with notions of the exotic, right? Like, oh, look at this interesting mythology that is not my mythology. But at the same time, I'm interested in the fact that the game doesn't frame those things in that way, right? Uh, I've played plenty of games that have – think about something like uh, Bioware's – what was their martial arts – Jade Empire. Empire, right? Which from the jump frames it in this way that it, this is for Western consumption. This is taking these cultural touchstones. And I don't even know that, that, that I mean this in a purely pejorative sense, but certainly in a critical sense, that it's framed for Western eyes. The things in Cradle are just there. Uh, and I, if I hadn't dug into those things, I wouldn't have known about them. Uh, and that's really fascinating to me. That, that's this kind of like, this is a game made from a different cultural playbook. And on top of all of that, it is also uh, a game that is gorgeous and that the structure of it, maybe sort of like the Cat Lady, I think it changes what it thinks its focus is. Creators set up this notion of interpersonal mystery and then at a certain point it shifts to being uh, a question of world building mystery and a question of scientific mystery. And I don't know that that's fully successful, but I would it totally slipped past the radar of so many people despite being one of the most evocative games I've played all year.
0: Yeah. Also, it does
1: we – one more little thing that I just want to shout out because I completely forgot about this. There are characters that are androids in this game that have eyes, and their eyes are FMV video of real eyes. Like they're, they're, they're like <laughs> – and it is, it is absurd and also really unsettling and also really beautiful in, depending on the way it's deployed. And that is like – someone do something with that, please. It's so good
0: that's really taking the medium oh, yeah. doing something with it. it is.
1: Yeah, this is one of those
0: games that we have like on a short list of should we try this for the for the Pop Matters podcast?
1: <sighs> do do we think we can get something interesting out of it? And you can, <laughs> but also <sighs> there are things about that game. The game has puzzles in it that it probably shouldn't have.
0: Uh, that's what walkthroughs are for. Totally. This this came out in the summer. Yeah,
1: it snuck wow. out. It really snuck out and a coworker Vinny Caravella loved it and was like, Austin, you need he like he came in, we did a video for it where he's like, I'm just gonna play the beginning and it was just you're in this little yurt and the yurt is filled with readables it's filled with little newspaper clippings and with notes from one person to another you know unanswered emails and like i just want to stay in this room and read and create this this come to an understanding of this world an incomplete understanding of this world in that way because that is one of the most fulfilling ways for introducing me to new kind of um, sci-fi worlds that i wish games did more often uh, especially because at its best it resists the urge to lay it all out, you know? Um, it feels I, like
0: Will's right concept of density over breadth. Totally, totally. Although I do – one thing I, I want to question here is that you said it was like seemingly based on Buddhist philosophy, yet you start in a yurt. You It's uh, it's a mess <laughs> of things, uh, and, and I think I, – I'm wondering if that's like a collage of different ideas it bouncing off one absolutely another. absolutely is or is it like an
1: inexperience and that everything's just asian. Uh so it's set specifically on the Mongolian steppe in a very specific place. And I I suspect so it's made by a Ukrainian team which is which obviously is not uh you know it's not the same as the Mongolian steppe in any way. But I there is seeing other western devs tackle these kind of cultural elements has never felt I don't say so sincere because I don't have access there. But it, there, there doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it isn't again. Explo- non exploitative I don't, I don't want to even say go that far, right? But like, <laughs> it's handled with a deftness that even if it is incorrect, it doesn't feel exploitative, even if it is. Do you know what, I, if that's, and I, they, they, they put the effort in to try and avoid I it. I think so. I think they th- that they do. And it's a, it positions itself as a sort of like, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. I, I. This is why I want people to write about this game because I want – I would love other people to like dive into this stuff and spend the mental energy and their own expertise to help me figure out what it is I think about this thing, right? Like. That's usually why I list these games. Yeah, totally. Like, fuck, I don't know, man. Like, this is tough. It's a tough one, you know? Uh, going on to the much easier
0: one in my second game, mm-hmm. and I'm actually surprised, like, I was just trying to figure out three games for this, and I was looking around, and says, said, uh, no, people have got to have talked about it. and I looked around, why is nobody talked? Really? Nobody? Tales from the Borderlands I has know. got, like, nothing about it, and I'm I'm actually rather shocked about this, because it is simultaneously, apparently, Twitter's favorite Telltale game, <laughs> even surpassing the original Walking Dead, mm-hmm. and it is the one that is least talked about. Yeah. Like, Game of Thrones has gotten more ink than this game. I am just amazed at that, like, that disconnect from people's apparent, like, liking of this to their critical reaction to it, which is almost non-existent. Uh Maybe it's the fact that it's a comedy game and, like, critics haven't had to tackle comedy in any meaningful respect, right? It's why jazz punk got so little yes, totally written about it when it happened last year, which I suddenly realized I probably should have saved for a different episode, <sighs> but uh, maybe that's the part. But I think what really sets us apart from telltale is that if you want to look at it from a studio or tour perspective is that this is telltale using their formula and then deciding, you know what? We don't have to stick to the formula. We don't have to put in these puzzle elements. We don't have to do this. We, we don't have to have, like, quick time events that are tense and fierce mm-hmm. or having moral choice of who's going to die and who lives. We can just say, fuck it, balls to the wall, we're going to do what we want. And that's what they did. Yeah. It, it ends in what I can only assume is a fighting game sequence. Like, something out of a fighting game. (laughs) Oh, that
1: sounds great. So I played the the first episode. I just did a a stream for Extra Life a couple weekends ago, and I played that first episode and was shocked with how much fun I had and how much I enjoyed it and how much I laughed. And, like, man, like, I do need to go back to beat the rest of that game to play through the rest of those those scenarios.
0: It just gets more ridiculous. Like, like it slows down a little because episode two, it decides, okay, the first one was just manic energy in Mm -hmm. every which way, and just that chase, that what was that, a 30-minute racing chase sequence out of nowhere had you laughing the whole time. And then the second one decides, okay, now we're going to do a different type of humor, more dry, situational, between three characters that just constantly, it's kind of like, you know those moments in Archer? Yeah. Where he says, like, okay, now I'm going to do that. And then, like, the gun clicks and says, oh, hold on. And then suddenly, it, oh, no, you have to push the button. Right. And then suddenly everyone becomes, like, the, the dad trying to figure out why the light switch <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah. And, and it becomes that episode. The third one, it slows down because you can't maintain this high energy. You have to care. And it has character development. It has some of the most lovely character cool. development where the situation isn't death right. over the next hill. And it just does that. And then the fourth one, it says, you know what? Let's change genres for a second. Wow. <laughs> we're
1: now a heist film. Right, right. That's, and it's just, that sounds great. Do you think people avoided it because it was episodic and people were waiting for it to be done and they just kind of lost that momentum? Or do you think it's that it's a comedy thing? Do you think that it's specifically Borderlands? Well, as, I think Borderlands has – it although everyone who's played it has says, I don't really
0: like Borderlands, but I love this game. Yeah. And I'm one of those people. Yeah. Borderlands 2 literally put me to sleep while I was on the couch. I was somehow still playing, but I was not conscious. So that tells you yeah. everything you need about Borderlands. But this one, I was, I was like really annoyed when every episode ended because I wanted next. I wanted more. Mm-hmm. It has this Western mythology and like epic building this of the good guys and the bad it's like good bad and the ugly with comedy and talking robots and yeah
1: loader who
0: is the best so <laughs> i love loader he gets so, no he gets better so after every episode and part of it is another great thing that they did was the framing device because i think when telltale realized we don't have to stick with one character mm. their work became better right like sure walking dead eh, is benefited from you sticking with one character, but and The Wolf Among Us maybe hurt a little for it, but Game of Thrones, you need more characters. In Borderlands, it took the it didn't like need. Suddenly, you were all the characters. You're two characters whose stories conflict with each other, mm-hmm. and it's a framing device where you're literally telling someone what happens. So when like the w- reality breaks while you're playing and make your choices, it will suddenly shoot to the future. And said, "You're going to tell me what really happened now." <laughs> right, right, and the and the, you always have the other person who was there ready to smack them over the head to say, "Well, no, I'm telling this part of the story, you, and this is what you did, but that's not what happened." I don't care. It's,
1: it's curious to me because so many game critics who I love and respect have a deep fondness for works that are similar in other media. I think about the way Games Twitter is constantly abuzz about things like Rick and Morty and Steven Universe. I I think about the way that we write about or, you know, to each other, we were constantly in conversation about stand-up comedy and about like comedy in general and the important value of comedy when it comes to kind of deconstructing cultural stuff and even just to like being about self-care or just like, hey, it's good to fucking laugh about a thing sometimes. And yet, when we when we turn to writing about games, this thing that we're supposed to do, like as this is the thing we do, we love games, we love writing about games and talking about games, we somehow avoid the the comedy games that exist, in, or at least we. It strikes me that we haven't spoken super. Not intelligently, but we haven't dug deep into that stuff yet, or we haven't developed the the lexicon to do that. Like you mentioned Jazz Punk before, or even I think Undertale, a fantastic game that came out this year. Lots of writing about that game, but all that writing is just like, also it's funny. Also it's charming, and I haven't seen anyone dig into what – keep going, you know? Yeah, Monkey Island gets that lip service too, and especially since it's
0: the quintessential – Funny game is like when you're like a young critic and you're understanding thing and they talk about timing and how insult sword fighting mm-hmm. allowed you to help create the punchlines. You're satisfied with that and you realize, but personally, those weren't the funniest moments of the game. Right. And I've never actually read anything about what I consider the funniest moments of the game and why. Of course, there is also the point is that you don't want to explain the joke. Right. Right. Because that kind of that
1: ruins it, so maybe there's this Why not though? Because, so, I, I, this is, this is the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, is we've had a lot of conversations about spoiler culture. I've seen Lana Polanski write a lot lately on Twitter. I've seen Gita Jackson write about this, a lot of critics who I respect a lot, you know, and I've been a part of that conversation too. There is, I get why not, to be clear. I, I understand why you don't want to explain the joke, especially in something like Twitter or in general, like the notion of, oh, if you explain the joke, then, then the joke isn't good enough on its own. And the notion of like, oh, I want to share this thing that I love with other people so they get to laugh about it. But there might be value in talking about why the humor in these spaces works so well. I mean, I'm sure there is. In the same way that there's tons of critical work in film studies around humor. You know, I, I've... Some of my, my favorite things in life have been reading great film critics unpack why a certain the humor of a certain film or a certain filmmaker is so evocative. And sometimes it literally does mean explaining the jokes or even anything like even my love of something like hip hop, where so many of the so much of the good writing around hip hop has been about analyzing not only, you know, flow and rhythm, but but also wordplay and different sorts of, of analogy and like. You doing that deep dive, that very lyrical deep dive, that very textual deep dive can be productive. And when we think about humor in games, I do, you know, not in the review of Tales from the Borderlands. I don't want it to be like, oh, hey, this is the best joke in your, and that's why you should buy this game. But in critical pieces, I would love to see people say, Hey, like, what is the anatomy of a joke in Tales from the Borderlands and why does it work so well? You know, or what are the four different types of jokes that you see here? And, or like, four examples of a type of joke that you'd see in Tales from the Borderlands. And what makes it land in a way that other games that try to be funny don't necessarily succeed? You know, and, and getting specific could definitely help. And your third game uh, is a, a game that, that I've seen people write about, but actually it's on this list for a similar reason, which is. A uh, similar reason to this, the comedy discussion we're having right now, which is it's Sybil, which is a game by Nina Freeman, and I've seen people write about this game, but I've only seen people write about it in one way, and this could be a, a false – this could be bad for me. right? This could be on my, my side. I haven't seen the second thing. I've seen lots of people write about this in the experiential New Games Journalism-y, this is how I relate to this way, and I think that that's a valuable way, and I think that everything – I pretty much everything I've read about it in that way has been really cool. I've seen some people who situate it inside of a broader context of emerging. I should talk about what this game is first. I should, let me, let me me slow down. Sybil is a game by Nina Freeman. Mm -hmm. She is currently also working on Tacoma, which is the follow up to Gone Home by Fulbright Studios. Sybil is a, is a semi autobiographical game about Nina's experiences with internet gaming and personal relationships, right? It is, it, you know, in her own words, in her own pitch for the game, it's the story of a girl meeting someone in uh, an MMO and then deciding to sleep with them. And and that unfolds over the course of kind of three chapters that are spread out over, I think about a year, maybe nine months of this character's life. It intersperses a kind of uh, faux desktop where you can read blog posts and look at actual photos with with segments inside of, the fictionalized version inside of a kind of a fictionalized version of final fantasy 11 and while you play that you get messages from other players and you are engaging in or you're overhearing kind of a conversation between the main character and her suitor it is it's really interesting it's really fantastic the majority of the writing i've seen about this game so far has been about the context of its release which is uh you know oh hey this is a game about Something very personal in in the middle of November, in the middle of the, the era, you know, the age of tri- giant AAA games that are very much about something that's supposed to be universal and supposed to be explosive and blockbustery. Uh, I've seen it talked about in terms of a generational thing, where it's oh, you know, ours is this generation that do, that has had these experiences, and this is one of the first texts that engage in, in games that engages with those experiences. The kind of decentralized sociality and kind of the, the kind of the filter of the Internet, the everything that kind of comes through that. And I've seen lots and lots of really good writing that is just like, hey, this hits me because I've had similar experiences. And I, I bring this up not because I'm dissing those pieces, but because when I set out to write something about Sybil, that was the sort of piece I started to write automatically. And then I thought, okay, but what I really want is someone to just talk to me about this game. Talk to me about how the game is structured and how it succeeds beyond just it being relatable to me. And I haven't seen much of that, if any. And I'm not dissing, again, I just want to be super clear, this is not, I'm not dissing the people who've written those other things, because I set out to also write one of those other things. And and I think that speaks to the value and power of Sybil, because it hits a story that we didn't know we needed to tell or that a story that so many people have had inside of themselves that they haven't seen in this space and it does so in a way that's that's very um, uh, intimate for, for all of us. Uh, but I want someone to just do what I want them to do with comedy games too. And it's like, take the scalpel, go in, talk to me about the structure of this game, talk to me about the use of FMV that it has, talk to me about, uh, the ways in which it has different layers of, of uh, narrative information coming in at the same time. Like, that's the analysis I'd love to see, or an analysis that is at least, that is, that at least takes those things into account when it's trying to unpack why this game is so successful. Yeah, this is another game on the Pop Matters podcast mm-hmm.
0: short list of things we could possibly do. Again, because it was eye-catching and we didn't know much about it and looked interesting. Mm-hmm. We hoped we could get something out of it. And uh, how often do you I, – I don't think it's often that something on this podcast is also nominated for a game award.
1: <laughs> I think that – so I kind of think that that is symptomatic of the same thing that I'm looking at here. So it's nominated for a Game Award. It's nominated for a Game Award in the category Games for Change, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's whatever. Whatever. Keep changing the the name. Uh, What's that mean? Do we have any idea? I assume that it was like an award sponsored by the actual Game for Change organization. I'm not sure if it is, is it? That felt, that like, well, it's too coincidental, the name. So I figured it was something that fell along the guidelines of that organization's Mm -hmm. like, Philosophy or whatnot, and I have no idea. I've actually haven't played the game. I want to, but
1: I need to get paid first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I understand that. I think it's a sh- i think that it's strange placement. If I think that that game is fantastic, I like Sybil a lot, and I think that it 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 as much as any game has something to say about culture, uh, about relationships, about society. I like. I. It is. It absolutely like every game, sh- can and should be considered in those in those ways. But it, it, I don't know that it is a quote-unquote game for change in the way that we think about that phrase. Uh, and I, again, I, this is not pejorative. There's nothing... I'm not dissing Nina's work here. I'm, I'm friends with Nina. I, I think that her work is great. I also wonder if part of that categorization is... Here's the old post-structuralist argument. It's really cool that we have women's studies and African-American studies programs, that's great. It's important to be studying those works. What would be more valuable was to be studying the work of women and people of color inside of already established programs instead of segregated away where the people who will rise into the next halls of power can avoid them. And I fear by treating Sybil as a game for change instead of also as a game, instead of analyzing its story only as, oh, this is speaking to us in this one unique way, instead of saying... Also, let's analyze the story for itself, which is impossible in some ways, right? There's, there is no outside of context. I recognize that. I, I you, see, you see the argument, right? Like, and I, I would love I, someone it, to take – to dig into it in that way.
0: If I could have a parable here, of 2013, I, I got super annoyed with criticism in 2013 that I wrote a piece that the top 13 most talked about games in 2013. Mm-hmm. And by the time you got to number 13, I literally could find three pieces about it. It's like everything was concentrated in like the top two or four right. games. and But the parable here was number one was Bioshock Infinite. Right. Number two was Gone Home. And the parable here is that Bioshock Infinite, Every single piece, despite considering about half of what was critically written about a video game rather than like a cultural issue, mm-hmm. it was either violence or racism. Yeah. It's like no one could think of anything else, and they were all important, but by the time you're reading the
1: 50th thing about how it's racist saying the exact same thing, mm-hmm. you're bored to <laughs> fucking tears. Sometimes sometimes of those pieces also came six months after the initial batch and I pretended that the first batch never yeah. existed.
0: And sometimes it was a complaining
1: about how no one paid attention to the original thing and it was- I recall. (laughs) It was a weird year for games writing, I recall. Yeah.
0: I, but and then but also Ga- when Gone Home came, and in two weeks, I could identify 15 different styles of criticism. Right. about. And there was like one per criticism, one dealt with it as a horror game, one dealt with it as a, as a lesbian literature, young adult literature, uh, new games journalism, specific craft moments right. and the storytelling. And it was like there was variety so I understand the stiltedness when you just grab onto the first thing you think of and hold
1: on to dear life. Well, it's also fascinating because there because there's something. I wonder if that also reflects a shared desire among critics to do good in the sense that coming on something, something coming off of something like Gone Home, where so many at the time felt that it was a breath of fresh air and indicative of the sort of game, not necessarily only in style but in but in content that many of us had hoped we would see eventually, that we were freed from a certain responsibility to shout about what it did right, and we were able to talk about what it did generally, like what it did morally right. And instead we were able to say, oh, and also let's zoom in on the time that the light breaks. Uh, Let's let's zoom in on the act structure of this game. Let's zoom in on the way that it, it actually constrains you in this way. Um, versus something like Bioshock Infinite when at the time – and this is not an excuse for the homogeneity of critique, of which I was part of, to be clear, around Bioshock Infinite. I wonder if there was such a – seeing that game treated at the time in popular media as being the next great thing for, for interactive narrative, There was this just overwhelming like, no, like we need to stop this. we I want to say that I want to be the one to put my fucking foot on the back of Ken Levine's neck and like rub his face in this thing that he made. I wonder (laughs) if that was part of the impulse. I'm not saying that was specifically mine. In fact, I I actually think – In general, my pieces were never explicitly about race, though one of them was about gender. I do wonder if there – we were freed from that impulse a bit with Gone Home, and now we're back around – now Sybil is now this third example where, like, it is like Gone Home, a small game about something intimate that had not previously been hit by games that have had this reach i i'm sure other games have, have hit this topic before and i've just never heard of them because that's how media works but i wonder now if we're, that same urge is happening of like no people need to know about this because here is something novel that we have ignored in this space and i want i think it is good if people know that this thing and, and it is good if people know that for instance their online relationships are not you know, perversions of good relationships. They are an, a, a totally organic and r- relatable and reoccurring thing in, in today's culture. So I, I I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of why people do this thing that they do. But I would just like – I would like to see more heterogeneity. I feel like
0: it's a little more complicated than that. I mean it came out in the beginning of November, sure. like right before Cop-Ops 3 oh, right. and Fallout 4. And it's like I, – I understand you release it when it's done – because that's when you do it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you're going to get swept along. At the same time, it's only been a few weeks, so
1: yeah.
0: May, yeah. it takes more time, because we're still in, I, I take it we're still in the general here's a thing that exists phase yeah. of cri- of criticism. I hope
1: so, though, again, it's tough. Like, there is, this is the thing we don't really talk about a lot, is, like, what does the time of year of a game's release mean for the quality, not the quality, but the styles of criticism that it, may, it might receive, right? Like, something like Gone Home came out in August where people had a little bit more time on their plates. And nothing else came nothing else out. come out recently. No one else was looking for hot takes of other things. It was immediately kind of positioned into a bunch of different conversations, not just in terms of sexuality and gender, but even in terms of, like, independent game making, in terms of what prices were adequate for certain styles of games. Like, you mentioned horror. Like, there, it was in some ways the perfect specimen, right? Like... What do you want to – I thought about something else this year in that way, and I – god, what was it? Something else big came out this way and I – or came out this year or earlier this year, and I couldn't help – oh, Metal Gear Solid 5 felt like the same thing of like it came out in a really good time, and also what do you want to write about? Do you want to write about shooters? You can write about Metal Gear Solid 5 and shooters. Do you want to write about BioPower? You can write about BioPower in Metal Gear Solid 5. Do you want to write about uh, Kojima? You can write about Kojima. Do you want to write about sexism? You can write about sexism. Do you want to write about the studio structure and exploitation of labor? You can write about that. Like it was the ur text that you could deconstruct and part of that is coincidental part of that is like when it came out and it wasn't being overwhelmed by other by other games at the time and part of it is just a coincidence of history of just like oh yeah and it happens that this game came out of konami where things are a fucking mess right now so so we get those games sometimes and thankfully they do encourage a diversity of critical opinions and i i wish we lived in a world where we had the leisure to do that with every game that came out you know
0: Part of it is also the size of games. Like, you can do that with music. You can do that to a degree with song and TV. Maybe not books so much. I feel like that's more where games Mm -hmm. are going in due to sheer length and complexity.
1: Oh yeah, I can listen to an album right now and have a hot take by tonight, you know? Uh... Speed is another factor because,
0: like, everyone wanted their take mm-hmm. on on certain games and with Bioshock Infinite you grab the first thing that's, and it's also the easiest thing to mm-hmm. grab because there's so much evidence for it. Right, right. Especially the more artistically complex a work, the less seems to get written about yeah. it just by virtue of... It's going to take time, and do I have the time when I need to make rent by writing five other <laughs> future
1: pieces? Yep. As always, when we analyze criticism, we have to be sure to be aware of the context that it comes out of, and sometimes that context really is just, man, I, I don't know if I can make rent.
0: Alright, let's. Less. I was about to say less depressive than I realized what my third game was, is, is no. My third game is Nyasants, which I think oh, is how it's I pronounced. Think that's right, yeah. And. I played this Virtue Nick Capazzoli This was, I believe, his game of the year last year. And I was just like, okay, I'm in the rush to catch up on everything in December. Let's let's play this. And it was like, it's like a series of slow motion gut punches. Because it's pure tone. It's pure atmosphere. It's almost geometric in how like it affects you because there's there's no people there's nothing written it's all and i would say that there are like blocks that are in the shape of like hanging apartment buildings of walkways of like large brutalistic structures Mm -hmm. but really i but it almost feels like those are coincidences of various geometries intersecting one another and it's how this space these architectures just affect you there's this one brilliant section where you're after going through this long labyrinth, and then you fall down, and then you enter this long chasm. It's like it's this big air shaft. There are no handrails, and then there's just this tiny little staircase with a little column in the middle hanging over nothing. And you have a jump button, and you have to somehow. And the thing is, you don't know where you're going, so you could be going the wrong way, and you'd have to like instead. You might have had to walk along this long narrow ledge going somewhere right. else. And it's just, you can look down, except the draw distance, it just turns into fog, because it's so long, and you will eventually climb down this huge section. You'll fall off slow-moving waterfalls, where there are these platforms, and have to jump from platform to platform to continue down this shaft, and eventually you hit the basement... You go into a door, you go down some hallways, you come out the bottom and realize, oh, that, that floor is the ceiling of this other huge <laughs> empty space, and you're just diving. It's like the journey to the center mm-hmm. of the earth in some ways. But one point is when I got stuck into what looks like, like a restaurant complex, mm-hmm. and eventually go out this door, follow this like small, like, narrow thing into this door, and it just open and I exit, and there 's just this weight, this huge, empty space stretching off into infinity, blackness everywhere, and I could just keep going and If I turned around, I would see this tiny little door, uh, this huge this huge wall face reaching up to the top of the sky, and it would just get smaller and smaller the further I walked away and i couldn 't take it. It was the pressure of nothingness just said nope, turned around and ran straight back into the complex, and like space has an effect like when they tried to figure out where all the nuclear waste is going to go for the next 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And they'd realize, well, we can't just put it in the desert. We, can- we have to figure out a way to keep people away without the use of words, because by the time this degrades, language itself will have changed. We can't use symbols because the meaning of symbols changes. And and we can't like put large impediments because erosion will eventually take away fences and walls. So what they cr- what they created was, okay, we have to use psychology, because <laughs> psychology is the slowest thing to change. Huge blocks with, tar- with narrow little corridors, and by huge blocks I'm talking like several stories right. high, just square blocks, very long, and the only way to travel through is this narrow little corridor because eventually your psychology will tell you, no, no fuck this, turn yeah. around and run, yeah, can't just like it. I had, and I feel like that's what this does, and the way it turns out in the end – it's bizarre. Like, I'm not even sure it has meaning to it because it has so many twists and turns. This space is not real. Mm. There is no way, even in a fantastical setting, this space could be real. But it is, at the same time, not blatantly psychological. It's almost, uh, what's the word? It's almost like an allegory oh, sure, something. Sure, sure. It's like a fantasy that's allegorical rather than fantastical. Right. And I just love the effect it had on me. Also the the problem is whenever I like stalled out in something, so says like I close it and then like a few hours later, no I have to go back to it and play it again. <laughs> I can continue playing. There's a one point where the game just kicks you out mm-hmm. because you took the wrong turn. Oh, like geez. there's like a fork in the road there's like a fork, you can go left or you can go right. Going one way will take you the right go the going the left way will take you during a small path. Eventually you'll go through this little opening into this bright white space and the game executable will shut down and kick you to desktop. That's
1: amazing. Um, and
0: if you boot it up again, it brings you back to the fore.
1: A lot of this reminds me of a game by Connor Sherlock <laughs> called Voice of Vimana, which if you haven't played, you should really play. It is a similar game about walking through a very strange space, very strange architectures, kind of through a massive derelict spaceship that is one of the most... What's the word I'm looking for here? Not not just frightening, but overwhelming. Like uh, It was hard to be in that place eventually. Uh, I really love it. It's called Voice of Vamana, V-A-M-A-N-A. Uh, Connor Sherlock is a is a game maker who I guess probably most familiar with the raptures here and you'll be forcibly removed from your homes from a couple of years ago. But but yeah, Voice of Vamana definitely sounds like it does a lot of what nasons did to you. It did that to me. So And I definitely want to check out nasons finally. Yeah. And there's one jumping puzzle that's super
0: annoying just it's because i always of the time. way. Well the thing is like most of the jumping puzzles are super easy and most of like your annoyance with them is like oh my god did i go the right way and that's that fear is part of the experience mm-hmm. in going certain ways but there's one where there's literal pistons coming out of the wall going at, so, and you have to jump to one and then jump to the next one is it comes out before the other one goes right, off and there's right. like six of them and you don't always make it This and you ha- you're just describing <laughs> destiny now you're just describing
1: the raid on <laughs> destiny and also yeah.
0: This it's is... that one It's that one miniature section, though. It, right. If you can do it right, it's it's like 10 seconds. Why do they but if do this? Do Why it... do people make jumping puzzles in these games? Well, jumping puzzles, fine. Time jumping yeah. puzzles, fair enough. Time jumping puzzles to instant death, where then you're sent back to the thing and have to reboot. Yeah, that's where yeah. it gets to Yep. It. If you can forgive that one minor 10-second f- <laughs> section that can turn into an hour and a half like it did for me. Mm-hmm. Especially how it ends, because... How it ends is the first time you actually see another, quote-unquote, living thing. Mm. And it's this big monster using, like, the block reminences of how everything had like, fallen to the very lowest point. And then you running away from it as, like, the winds of its suction from its mouth just start tearing various rooms and buildings and sections of of the same at you. And you have to jump from one to the next. And then at the very end, I feel this... I thought this might be a spoiler, but then I realized I don't understand it myself, so I don't know if it is a spoiler. After the end, and everything collapses in, you walk through another section, and then you're back at the beginning. Wow. In the first room. Huh. And I have no idea what that means.
1: That sounds really good. I really want to – now I feel bad for for missing that game. Every year you can only evangelize so many games
0: before you spread yourself too thin and no one pays attention to mm-hmm. you. And unfortunately, I was bit, last year. I was busy evangelizing other things, so this one fell below that threshold. And as I pushed everything else, things I did like more, harder than this, this one fell by the wayside. But it really is something I wish more people would experience and write because tone and abstract atmosphere is something we don't talk yeah, about enough. Yeah, definitely. And there's something, and those are things games do better than other mediums because space is such... Like, the ability of presence right. that games do that other mediums have to supplement with other material. And I, we don't talk about it enough, and it's something of craftsmanship that we really need to. Yeah. Well, for those <laughs> listening... All the games on our lists are in the show notes. Please check them out. And if you are a critic, and everybody's a critic, please write about them, think about them, play them, buy them, generally in the opposite order I just listed. And thank you, Austin, for coming on. Thanks so much for having me.